go back throughout this week, especially this week, the next few days, and, and look at these different references in other Gospels, so that way you can see how Matthew, Mark, Luke, John uh, put together from, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through their perspective, to see um, the different little nuances that each one brings about the, the trial of Jesus and as well as the crucifixion uh, process. You can see John 19, Luke 23, Mark chapter 14 and 15, Matthew 26 and 27. And look at these different references. But as well, if you want to do a little bit further, go ahead and look at some of those references from the prophetic of the Old Testament that Christ fulfilled even just that week of the Passion Week or the, the week of the Passover during this. Um, I want to go ahead and, and address this as well. And this is not um, anything too, too crazy or, or mind-blowing tonight, but I do believe that the Lord... Uh, Jesus was crucified on, on Thursday. I believe it was what we would celebrate as tomorrow afternoon uh, to get our three three days, three nights. On a Friday, you, you can't do the math and come out to Sunday morning being three. Um, now, now there, these are one of these things that you can you can debate a whole lot. And that, that's perfectly fine. The great thing is I know this. Christ has died for my sins. He was buried rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Now there's a whole lot of stuff that I'm not going to be able to get into tonight. I wish tonight could be totally exhaustive dealing with um, the issue of Passover, the Lamb, and some of the things that Jesus fulfilled as well on, on uh, just during that week. Some of the inspection process and how that Passover was one like they had never had before and never will have again. Uh, but nevertheless, tonight what I want to focus on is the corrupt court and then we're going to look at the crucifixion process. Okay, so... Uh, let's go through here. First of all, I want to give you sort of a broad overview of the events leading up. Uh, according to the timeline that I believe is found in the Bible, uh, just through different study and everything else, um, what would be taking place is the night before Jesus' crucifixion, uh, he was arrested and brought back to the, pl- to the palace of the high priest where he was questioned by Annas, who was a former high priest in Caiaphas, which is Annas' son-in-law. We'll address that in a little while later. Uh, Annas kept power of priesthood through his sons and son-in-law until the end of his life. Afterwards, he was tried by the Sanhedrin and found to be guilty of blasphemy by proclaiming himself to be the Son of God. He was sentenced to the death penalty. Now, this is interesting. The Sanhedrin is... is uh, I want to address that here. How many of y'all have heard of the Sanhedrin? Alright? So the Sanhedrin is, is this. In Jerusalem they act as sort of what would what we might call like a supreme court all right but here's what it, here's here's what we're looking at now, since Moses council of elders was the pattern for the sanhedrin that council also numbered 71 compromised of 24 chief priests plus 46 more elders chosen from among the scribes pharisees and sadducees the high priest was both the overseer and a voting member of the sanhedrin Bringing the number to 71, the odd number ensured that decisions could be reached by a majority vote. Now, during this day, though, there had been quite the issue. You would like to think, like our own selves in our own land, that our court systems are perfect and just and pure and there's no issues, right? <laughs> Not so much. Where you have people, you have corruption. Where you have people, you have greed. You have um, people doing all that they can possibly try to do to get power and authority there's pride ruling over everything and there's wicked gain there's all sorts of things taking place now the Sanhedrin had become very corrupt uh, by political gain and as well as the political maneuvering of going I want to see how high I can get up in this it's all about politics right it's it's shaking hands and kissing babies and stuff it's it's bribing with money uh, all of these different things to, to try to gain more position for them during this time, while they're under the sort of Roman captivity, if you will, in their own land, what they find is that the only little bit of power that they're able to muster is through the religious sort of courts or through this sort of uh, uh, Sanhedrin type of ruling. But even then, it's, it's, sort of, it's only limited in what they're able to do. Uh, the Romans have kind of let them sort of play their part and kind of go, well, you guys have your fun and pretend like you're a real nation, but we're, we're over you, right? Now, during this... We see as well that uh, dealing with this trial here, since only the Romans were able to execute criminals, Jesus then was sent to Pontius Pilate um, at the Antonia Fortress. Pilate, who said he not finding any fault or any wrong, sent him to King Herod, who returned back 
he returned him back to Pilate. Now Pilate then, submitting to the pressure of the crowd and the pressure of the day, then ordered that Jesus be uh, going through the crucifixion process. We're going to see is dealing with a, a flogging or a scourging and then the crucifixion process to the cross. And he was finally let out of the city walls, and that's important, to be crucified at Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, this is important, dealing with the Sanhedrin in this corrupt court for a reason. It's often overlooked, and I'm not even going to be able to give everything in all the great details from bringing about how they even came to existence, the whole nine yards, but to help out a little bit tonight, Jesus had already prophesied this was going to take place. Now, this is just a part of the fulfillment of what Jesus had prophesied, what the prophets had prophesied about the coming Messiah. But here's what Jesus had to say over in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. If you look in the context of this whole passage, it takes place after the feeding of the 5,000. Now, what's so special about that miracle is not only that Jesus fed 5,000 plus people, is that this, it's included in all four Gospels. It demonstrates God's authority, His provision, it, 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 um, as well then comes right afterwards, it says, and it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked him, saying, whom say the people that I am? This is important because Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. The Bible tells us who was his own. Well, he was a Jew. But guess what the Jews had done nationally? They had rejected him nationally. They were some, a, a, a small few, as the Lord always has a remnant, who, who believed by faith that had followed him. And here's what verse 19 tells us. They answering said, some say John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say that you're one of the old prophets is risen again. Now that's important to note as well, and I won't be able to address that tonight, but the foundation of our faith understands that there is going to be a resurrection. Now for many of them, they believe through different um, rabbinic teachings that one of the older prophets, like Moses or Elijah, which talked about in both Old and New Testament, is going to be resurrected to be a, a witness. Now, they believed some that Jesus was just one of the old prophets who came to, to sort of gather up the people, right? To, to prepare the way. But here, this is what Jesus says in verse 20. But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God. Now, that doesn't sound like an awful lot there, but that is an awful lot there. The Christ of God, the sent one of God, the Messiah, the the anointed one of God, the one who has come to be the mediator between God and man, the one sent from God. He says, and he straightly charged me, commanded them not to tell no man uh, to tell uh, to tell no man that thing, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. This already eliminates. The issues that some people say, well, Jesus didn't actually die. Baloney, he did. He said he was going to, and he did, because you know how many people in the human history have ever escaped or lived through a crucifixion? That many. Zero. You don't do it. And here in a little while, when we get through the crucifixion process, you're going to see why. Uh, no one could, no one would suffer, uh, no one rather would survive it. Everyone suffered long and grueling at times in, in different ways. We'll look at that. But he prophesied not only that he would go through the court process, but he prophesied his death, burial, and his resurrection. Now, I want to look at some of the illegalities of the trial, though. There is an importance of the witness. Any trial has to have some witnesses, don't it? Right? When we're talking about you got to go, if there's a murder trial happening here in the county, right? They're going to have some witnesses, some accounts, some testimonies, things like that. Now, even more so, what do those accounts and testimonies have to do? They've got to line up, don't they? Right? If I say, I saw Colonel Mustard in the library with the wrench, but Tony saw... Uh, I don't know any other characters from Clue. Anybody? <laughs> I should have thought that one through a little bit more. He saw the Monopoly Man. <laughs> he saw the Monopoly Man with a three fifty seven in the dining room. Well... We've got some controversies here in our things that we saw, huh? Colonel Mustard and Monopoly Man, they're different people. We've got different rooms, the whole nine yards. They've got to line up. Now, this is especially important for Jews. God had given this in the Old Testament, which I'll give you a few verses here in just a moment. But Jesus had talked a lot about the importance of a witness. Many times, especially as you read the Gospel of John, he said, talking about witness, he said, Father bears witness. I bear witness. These signs are bearing witness. 
there was more evidence and more witnesses to show that Jesus is and was and forever shall be the Christ of God, as Peter had just talked about. There were plenty of things that if you were to put Jesus on a real trial, not a mock trial, not a kangaroo court as we're going to see what this became, but a real legitimate trial, it would have been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is Christ, God in the flesh, the promised Messiah. However, the people's hearts had grown darkened and cold and rejected Jesus, the suffering servant of God, the Son of Man, because they desired a political Messiah. They had been anticipating Messiah for years and years, generation after generation. And what they were looking for is not someone to deliver them from sins, but rather someone to crush the Romans and then to set up the kingdom there in Jerusalem and to uh, rule well and righteously and justly to expand their borders, the whole thing. They're looking for something that's only physical. They didn't see their need of their spiritual things because during this day, they still have a temple where they're, where they're able to worship. They still got the Sanhedrin. They still feel as if they got things going on, but they really got nothing going on. Spiritually, they're like Jesus, though. They're full of dead men's bones. They look good on the outside, right? Inside, they're dead. They have no faith. They have no real knowledge of the one that is before them. Now, with this, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 tells us this. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by testimony of two or three witnesses. I mean, two or three. Deuteronomy 17, then 17, verse 6 tells us that the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. So if only Tony saw the Monopoly man with a 357 in the dining room and nobody else did, not happen, right? Two or three witnesses. This is why Jesus talked about that in the Gospel of John and said, you want two witnesses? I bear witness of what the Father's doing. The Father bears witness of me. The signs that I've done, the miracles that I've done, there's countless evidence. There's more evidence and more witness there than what they're asking for or even than what the law requires. And yet the people still reject the truth about who Jesus was. Now once you know today, the evidence is still very much there. That Jesus is the Christ. But what does sinful man do in their sinful condition? The Bible tells us that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So this is what they're doing. This is what we see in our own day. Where they see the truth. It is undeniable who Jesus is. Matter of fact, most people today who don't even know Christ and are considered to be scholars or academic people believe that Jesus was a historical figure. But I want you to know he's much more than that. We don't need to try to prove him historically. The, the world says, yeah, he was a real person. But the difference is, is, not only he was a real person, but he was God in the flesh, the Son of God, the only begotten, the Father, full of grace and truth, who came to take away the sins of the world. He is not just someone who came and preached and was a good example. Not only is he someone who died the death of a common criminal on the on a cross, but that he went into the grave and that he rose again. And it's the resurrection that truly separates him from everything else. It's the resurrection that puts the, the stamp of approval, if you will, that he is God, that the payment is accepted before the Father, and that this is true, that this is the Word of God. Now, and we see in Mark 14.56, tells us, uh, I'll turn there for just a moment, Mark 14.56, we see this dealing with the court here. In 14.56, he's before Caiaphas, it says, For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. You know what that means? A whole lot of witnesses said a whole lot of things about Jesus and none of it lined up together. Meaning that, if, are you going to pronounce someone guilty if all the witnesses have a different story? No, I'm not. It's not just. It's not right. And it was not biblical for them of what they had been told to do according to Scripture. You need two or three saying the same thing, so they've got countless people who have been called in. Nothing, nothing's lining up. Now there's some other legalities that take place here on this night. I want to kind of give you sort of a, a rundown of some things, and it's a little bit broad, but these are important. And the reason why you and I often miss them is one, because we're not Jewish. 
If we were Jewish, we might understand a little bit more, but this is why we have to understand some historical background. Do a little bit of digging, all right? I, I am all for everybody in this room reading their Bible every day. But I am even more for you not going, I read X amount of chapters today. I'd rather you much say, I read this, and here's what God has shown me from His Word. I want you to study the Word of God. Study. Study. There's a difference. I can read a phone book, right? I can read the whole phone book and not be able to tell you all the numbers, not be able to tell you addresses, not be able to tell you a whole lot. But I can say I read the phone book. But you notice if I want to know somebody's number, well, i got to open it. Right? We don't even hardly do that anymore. <laughs> but we got to open up the phone book, right? we got to find the number, the name, the address, make sure it lines up with who we're trying to get then you know what we're probably going to do? If you're like me, you're going to write it down, make sure you got it before you make a phone call or send that card. You're going to do a little bit of study make sure you know where this is at. Know who this is. Now, this, uh, some of these are coming from uh, one commentator here. He helps to sort of put these historically together a little bit. Here's some of the illegalities that took place here. This arrest was not allowed to take place at night. You know when Jesus got arrested? It was night. Praying there in the garden. You know the whole, all the Gospels cover this. Praying there in the garden, he says, it's time. Judas comes leading the, the band of merry men. They come. They're not coming for anything good. They're coming to fulfill, actually, the prophecy that Jesus had said in Luke chapter 9. Now, the trial could not happen at night legally. And if it would, say there was a legal court proceeding taking place during the day. And the sun starts setting. You know what they're going to do? They're going to adjourn for the following day. This sounds pretty familiar, right? We do a similar concept, right? Now, they would do the same thing. The Jewish people believe, look, here's what we're doing. If it's nighttime, we're not doing that. It's not right. We're going to go into the next day. Now, this is important because the whole night after Jesus has prayed in the garden and after He's now delivered into the hands of sinners, that He spends the whole rest of the night doing what? Facing a trial. Being bounced back and forth from here to there and everywhere, ultimately leading to where, come morning, He's going to have His final trials before, uh, and Pilate's going to say, alright, well, that's all she wrote. And then the crucifixion's going to be starting, and then it's going to be a whole long day after that. Second. The time and date of the trial were illegal because it took place at night and on the eve of the Sabbath. This time precluded any chance for the required adjournment to the next day and the event of a conviction. Now, this is important to note here because this whole week is a holy week for them. There's, there's something so special and so sacred about Passover for them. But it is approaching the highest holy Sabbath day of the week. This trial should not have legally happened, but guess what? They wanted it to happen. When man wants evil done, he doesn't care a whole lot about rules and regulations, right? You can put up signs all you want about speed limits, and guess what? Pastor Joe's still going to break it. <laughs> you can ask some folks about that, right? <laughs> Just, Sheriff, sorry, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Third, Sanhedrin was without the authority to sort of instigate these charges from within. They dealt with charges that came from without, and then they would be the ruling party. Now with this, it was only supposed to investigate the charges that brought before it, and in Jesus' trial, the court themselves formulate this. So we'll see a little bit later on about this. Now then fourth, the charges against Jesus were changed during the trial. Anybody ever notice that? I hadn't either until I started studying this little bit. He was initially charged with blasphemy based upon his statement that he would be able to destroy and rebuild the temple of God within three days, as well as his claim to be the Son of God. But when he's brought before Pilate, the charge was that Jesus was a king and did not advocate paying taxes to the Romans. Because what do they cry out? No king with Caesar, right? Caesar's our, our king, right? And they start siding up there. 
we're, no, no, we're friends of Caesar. He's not our king. And this is another reason why they get irate that above his cross, which is where the, the criminals would have their crimes, a place there for all to see. It was a part of the shaming, right? It would be like having your sentence read over here at the courthouse, and then in your jail cell in front of it, they put, you know, Tony stole 38 tons of double bubble bubble gum, right? Sorry, Tony. <laughs> right? You're going to have that charge of it. So, changes. Now, let me ask you, if we had a national, being able to all of us watch one big old nationwide proceeding of court, and it starts off, this is a murder trial, right? But then when we finally get to ruling, well, now it's, well, it's not murder anymore. Now it's actually uh, Grand Theft Auto. Is that the same charge? No. Different. If it's getting changed all in the middle of this, what can we see? They could not find him guilty of any of it. Why? Because he is no blasphemer. He is God. He did not commit idolatry or blasphemy. He is God. He did not do any of these things of usurping authority or doing any of these things as far as a king. He wasn't trying to, like the zealots, and, and lead this sort of revolt. What's he doing? He came to fulfill the prophecy of Old Testament that said he was, and even his own prophecy, it says, I'm going to come and die for sinners and raise again. That's what he came to do. Five. I stated above the requirement of two witnesses in agreement to merit the death penalty was not met. Another big red flag that should have ceased this whole thing. It's an unjust court proceeding. It's an unjust court ruling. It's an unjust death because it's the just for the unjust. If it would have been you or I that night who would have been there in the garden as the guards come and take us away, accused of blasphemy, idolatry, uh, zealotry, revolting, any of those things, you know what we would have been found? Guilty. Why? Because we're sinners. Every one of us. And they could not find Jesus guilty of a thing. Why? Because He is the sinless Son of God. He is God in the flesh. Six. The court did not meet in the regular meeting place of Sanhedrin as required by Jewish law. Everything is out of whack. They're trying to speed this thing on up. Right? Let's get this done. Right? We've got to wrap it up here. Seven. Notice the whole time, Jesus was not really permitted a defense. Their Jewish law, an exhaustive search into the facts presented by the witnesses should have occurred. Instead, what happens is they go, you did this. And then if he stayed silent or said a word, you dare speak to the high priest in such a manner? Or then later on, don't you know that I have the authority over your life and over your death? The only one that had authority over life and death, Jesus said, I lay down my life. That's what Jesus came to do. And we'll see that in a few moments as we deal with the crucifixion. Lastly, the Sanhedrin pronounced the death sentence. And under law, the Sanhedrin were not allowed to convict and put the death sentence into effect. John 18.31 It says, And said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Now why does Pilate do such? He knows their law. He's trying to squash this thing. He's trying to wash his hands of it all together the whole day. He finds no fault. He's trying to get them off his back, but the, the crowd gets rowdier and rowdier and rowdier because that day they want blood. As a matter of fact, they're willing to even say, Let his blood be on our hands and on our kids. That's big time. That's deep. It's the idea of let us be accursed. Even our kids, if that was what I mean, but let him die today. Now what would take place as well, though, during this time is that oftentimes if there would also be a day of fasting and prayer for the Sanhedrin, if there was an especially difficult decision that involved the death penalty, so during their court proceeding, if this is, this is tough, what they would often do is we're going to take a whole day where we're not even going to have court. We're not going to have the trials and the rebuttals and the accusations. 
and we're just going to fast over this thing. We're talking about someone's life, someone's death. Do we find in the Gospels that they said, you know, this is a hard decision. We're going to take a day and pray. No. They rush it along because they know what they're doing is all wrong. They know what they're doing. But guess what? You know why they don't care? A heart that has already been seared, that has already rejected Christ, that has already worn the outward things that says, look, I'm clearly of God. I clearly love God because, or at least I love Him more than you because of the robes I wear, my phylactery, my position, my power. Look at my prayers. Thank you, Lord, that I don't pray like this publican, like this sinner over here. Thank God I'm not like him. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, God, I am able to give more than him and more than her. What pride. Pride will always bring terrible, terrible fall. Now the conclusion of this little section here, the conclusion of the court, was already made before the illegal trial ever began. John chapter 11 gives us some insight to this. This is important. This is very neat here. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd. Lay down my life to sheep. John chapter 11, what does Jesus do? Lazarus, come forth from the resurrection and the life. This is the final of what John has as the, the sign miracles, meaning to show that this is the Messiah. Because no one else could do the things that Jesus did except the Messiah, which shows that Jesus is the Christ of God. Now, after this happens, it says in verse 45 of John chapter 11, and I'm going to read this in its entirety because you need it tonight, 98 too, all right? And then we're going to get into the crucifixion. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Praise God. But then verse 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. They said, what are we going to do? Why? Because even they, if anybody knows the, the Scripture at this point, if anybody knows what the Messiah will do when He comes, it's these folks. And they say, look at these miracles. Everyone's believing Him. Look what He's just done. People have seen it with their own eyes. It says, verse 48, If we let Him thus alone, all men will believe on Him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. What do they care about? The Sanhedrin the ruling court of the people, by the people, and for the people, won't for the people. They were for themselves. They were for the skin of their own necks. They were for their own pocketbooks. They were there for their own power, their own place, their own prestige of this whole thing. He says then, in verse 49, and one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, and as we just talked about earlier, son-in-law to Annas, Excuse me. And as we look here then, he says, Caiaphas being the high priest that same year said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness and to a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. It's a long week process. They sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given the commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it, that they might take him. So after Jesus performs this last sign that he is the Messiah for these people to outwardly see, matter of fact, remember, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, we got to go see, see our friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, because Lazarus is asleep. And they say, well, it's good he's asleep. He's resting up. Jesus says, 
He's dead. <laughs> I always love that. Jesus just, he's dead, guys, right? They had no idea. And then he says, and I'm thankful that I wasn't there so that you can see, so that God might be glorified. Because is there anything more powerful than watching the dead be raised to life? No! In case you were wondering. Good answer, guys. <laughs> now, let's look at this. Gone through the court, throughout the night, and into the morning. Now we get to John 19. Of course, you can see the other Gospels, each one having the same account, and yet its own little details. John 19 says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged Him. The soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on His head. They put on Him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! They smote Him with their hands. Stop there for a moment. Well, it's Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. The chief priest therefore and the officers saw him cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. And saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Which to any mortal man would have sent chills down their spine. Every individual out there that day in Jerusalem, on their way in, on their way out, in other parts of the land, they've seen crucifixions. They've seen the crosses which would have been staged outside of every town and village where these would have taken place. And every time you can imagine passing one, it would be, for you and I, we can't quite fathom, but it would be like this. And it, I don't want this to be sounding too severe, but this would be like us leaving town here and on the way in or on the way out of town and we see some gallows. We see nooses hanging with bodies still on same idea. If you don't like that, it would be like having electric chairs lined up over by 77 and criminals still there in the seats being zapped. Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except that were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivereth me unto thee hath the greater sin. From thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. The pot therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. The Passover about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him on either side, one in Jesus in the midst. The crucifixion process you can see throughout the other Gospels as well as in, in chapter 19. This is a long process. This is one that had been perfected by the Romans. Other groups of people had done so before the Romans, including the Persians, had, had their attempt at it. But the Romans, over several centuries, had perfected this thing. The Romans knew not just how to kill somebody, but they knew how to bring them to the point of death and let them live for a while to suffer, to be shamed, and to show an example of, if you cross us, this will be your fate. Public executions had quite the stir amongst the people. And public executions were quite the deterrent as well, by the way. Now, this process for Jesus began with mockery and abuse. He was spat upon. Covered his eyes up. Began to hit him. 
some with palm. Later, in other accounts, we see a, with a reed. It's for you and I. It's a big old stick. It's a big old club. This idea. Perhaps even the same scepter that they give to him to mock and ridicule him all the more. The royal mocking then, the king of the Jews goes as follows, they clothed him in purple. Purple is the color of royalty. He started off being accused as a blasphemer. He was no blasphemer. Now the trials change where, well, he said he's a king, and then if you don't get rid of him, then people will follow, and you're no friend of Caesar, the real king. He's the king that we submit to. So they begin to mock him. Little do they know while they strip him of his clothes and they place upon this scarlet or purple robe upon him to mock him. Little do they know about the description found in Revelation chapter 1. Little do they know about Revelation 19 of this conquering king coming back to make war and then to rule and reign. Little do they know that though they mock him with this mockery of a of a robe, that he's more worthy of just the purple robe that any other earthly king might wear to show that he's royal. As a matter of fact, Isaiah saw his train that filled the temple. It's a whole lot bigger than just a, a purple bathrobe that they throw on. Who is the King of Glory? Jesus Christ. Second, this royal mocking, they crown Him not with royal diadem. They crown Him not with many crowns, as we sing. They crown Him with the crown of thorns. These thorns were not just like a little rose bush. These are thick. It's the idea of the thickets. Would have been wrapped around, intertwined, much like how y'all see them pretty grapevine wreaths, except it's fit for a head, and it's nothing but long thorns. And it would be not just placed upon gently. It's to cause shame and affliction, so it's driven down upon. So it's not just causing some scrapes on the outside to let a little blood trickle. It's driven upon to where now it's punctured in, perhaps even fracturing, or even getting into the... It's underneath the skin here, this idea. Right? It's, it's, it's no just sitting on top. It's not a party hat. Any real king is not going to wear a crown of thorns, as he knows. He's going to wear one of gold and of jewels. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on this day would wear a shameful and painful crown of thorns driven upon his brow. Then we see that they would be striking him in the head with a reed. The reed representing the scepter of a king. Mocking his kingship. And I want you to know, as the Bible tells us all throughout, mankind that is lost and undone, that does not know Christ, that has not bowed their knee to God by faith, they will only be able to mock but for so long. There will only be but so much longer that God will continue to be mocked until He will have vengeance in His mind, at this point, he's already bruised, already bleeding, mockingly worshipped. Little do they know the importance of bowing their knee before him. There they bow their knee before him in mocking worship, but a simple bow of the knee of faith is all that it takes to save a soul. The Christ's suffering. I want to give you the physical suffering of the rest of the crucifixion process. This was just the beginning. This was just to let the shame set in. The King of Glory now mocked and ridiculed. The trial and the sentencing, sentencing takes place, and now we get to the scourging. Now in John 19, verse 1, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged Him. Now Pilate himself did not do the scourging. They had trained professionals for this. Normally it was a, a two-man scourging team. The individual who is going to be scourged or whipped is sort of the idea. What you and I would call cat of nine tails, which I'll describe in just a moment for us. This was to note here, 
was brutal. This was no just whipping with a bull whip or whipping with a paddle. So brutal that only the worst of criminals would go through such and only non-Roman citizens would be sentenced to such. Now what you and I would call cat of nine tails is about an 18 inch long handle within these long leather thongs. On the end of them are normally two different things. One, iron ball would be wrapped around. An iron ball thuds. Bruising. Immense amount of pain. You can take a blunt object Cut somebody open pretty good, can't you? Right? Anybody ever watched boxing or UFC fighting? Or anybody ever been punched in the nose before? <laughs> but you watch a boxing match and you say, man, those gloves look pretty soft. You ever notice round eight or round nine, they go to their corner and now their doctors are trying to keep their, their cuts from opening up even worse and things, right? They don't take a whole lot to open you up. Not only are there these iron balls, but normally there would be sheep bone. Sheep bone that would then be attached to the end. And this would be for the penetrating of the skin and the not just the lacerating the top portion like you would have a paper cut, but it's to penetrate and to rip and to tear is the idea. This is a gruesome matter. That each lash, as it comes down, each one is going to be about two inches long when that whip takes place. At least. It's going to be about three quarters of an inch deep. That's deep. If you ever fell off your bike when you was a kid, went in, found your mama, did one of a couple of things. Right? One, she either was a panicker or she was a, you're fine. Right? I had the sort of, let me see it first, and then I'll tell you if you're fine or not. Right? It's funny how parents are good. I'll, if I see it, I'll tell you if it's fine. They look and they go, ah, it's not deep, you're fine. Get on out there. Right? If it's deep, we'll, we'll rub some dirt in it. <laughs> Pack the wound and you'll be fine. Get back out there now, right? It's still sort of the same thing. This was a deep wound. It was caused nine times each time this whip comes down. Nine of these are going in, creating the outside laceration and the roughly half to three-quarter of an inch deep penetrating cut. It's getting down to not just the surface skin, but down into tissue. Causing blood to flow as well as tearing of the body. It would be like getting slowly mangled. Now, how many times would this take place? Paul talks about and he says, whipped about 39 times. This is at least the idea here. That's a whole lot of times. There were many, depending upon the beating, who did not even make it to the cross. That They would make it there, but they'd be dead before they got there. There would be many who would die beforehand. Bodies couldn't take such. But the guards didn't like to go for that. They wanted this during the crucifixion process. It was meant to be a dragged out process. And I'll, I'll cover that in a few minutes. It was not meant to be a quick death. It was not a hanging. It was not lethal injection. It wasn't a firing squad. It wasn't meant to get this done and over with. It was meant to publicly humiliate and shame and to bring about as much pain possible for this, for the crime. And so these guys were trained to such a degree that many would not die because they wanted them to get to the public shaming of the cross. They wanted them to go through the marching through the city as people wag their, uh, their heads and their tongues at them and curse them and spit upon them and ridicule them and go, shame, shame! Now as these whips come across his back and his body, be immense blood loss and pain. 
An immense amount of stress upon his body, of which, by the way, let's not forget, he's been up all night being tried, and he's been up since the previous morning, as Jesus had done, as we see throughout the Gospels, where he rises early, and what does he do? He goes and prays. And then even just the night before, as, as he's getting ready to be delivered over into the hands of sinners, what is he doing? He's praying. And he's already in such agony that it says that he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. You want to talk about agony, you want to talk about pressure. And literally, Gethsemane, you know what it means? It means to be pressed. An olive press. It's a place where you go and to press out the olives to get out, to get out that nice oil that's needed. What was Jesus going through? Being pressed. Because what was going to come from this, as horrific of a day and dark of a day as Calvary was, it was to bring about our healing. When the soldiers, of course then, tearing the robe from Jesus' back after they placed it upon Him, more than likely, there's several times where His wounds are being reopened and re-aggravated. Y'all ever pick a scab too early? Right? Yeah, of course. Well, he ain't got a whole lot of time to scab, and what's already there is just being ripped all the more. It's not getting any better. It's not scabbing over. There's no band-aids. There's no neosporin for Jesus. There's no mama's kisses. Isaiah 52, verse 14, tells us his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. After this brutal scourging would take place, which many didn't make it through, Jesus then would be given His crossbeam to carry, which we know that they then charged Simon the Cyrenian to carry it the rest of the way for Jesus. His body had been awake probably close to 30 plus hours at this point, physically exhausted, the strain and the weight of which He's been carrying as He's been praying from the previous morning into the night, serving His disciples, the betrayal, the denial, the, the back and forth, now the beatings, the everything that He's gone through at this point. Bloodied and bruised. Now this crossbeam, I want you to get in your mind sort of like a railroad tie. This sort of idea. It's about 100 to 150 pounds. Right? Weighs what I weigh. <laughs> Not quite. It weighs about what an average man was weighing. It's nearly the size of a, of a man. And they're carrying this, and they've got to carry, literally what they're carrying is their means of death. They're carrying what they're going to be nailed to. We want to talk about shame. The next time that you see your Hobby Lobby cross hanging on your living room wall that says blessed, I want you to think, this is much more than this pretty little decoration. This was truly an old rugged cross. An old rugged cross. This was truly like a, a, a raw tree, if you will, this man would have to be carrying and then laid down upon to then be nailed to. This is brutal. It's rough. It's unfinished. And here in a minute, I'm going to describe a little bit about the breathing process for them. And every time... His back is touching this. It's already been opened up from the scourging. It's now being reopened and re-aggravated, continuing to have every bit of nerve pain, unimaginable pain. Now with this, once they make it up to the hill, I believe that the common criminal, perhaps even the one that was on Jesus' side that said, I ain't done nothing wrong. I'm innocent, I tell you. If you're really the Christ, get us down here. Get us off of this thing. Believe that someone like that is not going to want to lay down upon a cross. Because they know that once they lay down on that cross, once they're nailed to it, there's no coming off of it. As a matter of fact, that would just be the beginning. For many of them, the crucifixion once they get nailed to the cross, that's just the beginning. Many of them would then last for days on end. Many of them would last for days on end being able to still breathe, 
though they struggled and labored, having to breathe and breathe and breathe and simply just trying to survive. But eventually, after days, what we'll see in a little while, is that the guards, whenever they felt like it truly, if they wanted to dead quick, they'd go over to the criminal as they're hanging there on their cross, and they would bludgeon their shins, their knees, their ankle bones, their legs to break them. So then they could no longer raise themselves up to breathe. And what happens? They drop down, they can't lift up, they can't get their air, and they die within a matter of minutes. But oftentimes the guards would let these folks linger on these crosses for days as a warning to all those who come in and out of the city and the town where they'd be crucified outside of the gate to say, don't do what I did. Don't cross the Romans or you'll be on a cross. Out in the elements, despised, rejected. Now the nails. The Bible describes palm. There's many who say that the palm here has to be like our English palm right here. I want you to know, if you drive a nail in here and then try to hang something on it, it's going to just rip through. These bones are not strong enough here. When the Bible talks about palm, though, their understanding of it is not like what you and I got, which is one little spot like that. They're dealing with even up and through the wrist. Now, you can feel with one hand or the other, and you can see that there's this sort of little in-between spot. Anybody ever had carpal tunnel? (laughs) Right? Painful. You know... If you move the wrong way, or you get up, or if you land, or you fall the wrong way, you get some pinched nerves or some nerve issues, you're in excruciating pain. And it's all over. It's like fire, or the sort of electrical current, if you will, that you're just in excruciating pain. But these nails then, be placed there, there. And the Romans had also found a spot same in the idea on feet towards the ankle. To then pin you to the cross, but as well in the process to what they would do is make sure, because in this spot, if you go too far a certain way, you're going to hit you're going to hit some arteries and you're going to bleed out. They don't want that. They want you to linger. But if you hit some nerve only, and then you get to leave them hanging there on that thing, then guess what? If you ever had sciatica, right? Or any sort of nerve issue. And what happens if you keep moving a certain way? It hurts. It don't just hurt one spot. It hurts all over, don't it? That's the idea. To cause as little bleeding as possible, but as much pain and suffering as possible. The Romans were an incredibly intelligent, but an incredibly vindictive people. They knew how to cause pain. They knew how to kill somebody in expert fashion. Little blood from the nails... Because they were perfected. It perfected the process to maximize the pain, minimize the blood loss. And during this process, you're nailed there and your breathing would be shallow, difficult, pain to your wrist, your feet, all the while having to lift yourself up to be able to take in the breath of the <gasps> to then let out. Now, if you just keep doing calf raises for a while, you're going to be pretty exhausted. Now, you're having many of these criminals are doing this for days on end. They've gone through much. Jesus now, he's been up. He's been tried. He's been beaten, ridiculed, bloodied. He's gone through everything. His body, as we just read in Isaiah, it is so marred that it is as if Jesus at this point, he's just a piece of meat. I want you to know this is important to understand the bloodiness of the cross Because this is the Passover lamb that year. And for all of eternity. The lamb of God. Take away the sins of the world. I want you to know when you see those little cute Sunday school pictures of the Old Testament tabernacle, they are the worst thing we could ever show our children because they do not show near enough blood. They show a little trickle. That's not sacrifice. Sacrifice of the Old Testament. There's blood everywhere. It is, it is a butcher. It is a massacre. It is piece by piece. It is a slaughter. 
He was a lamb, led to the slaughter. It wasn't a little bit of blood on his body and a little bit of pain he went through and then he just kind of passed out. He was butchered, slaughtered, massacred. Not for any crime he had done, but for every crime and sin against God that you have done and that I have done. He does this as a guiltless man, as a perfect man, as the perfect God, as the perfect Lamb. Now for many others, common deaths for many were exhaustion, elements, their own bodies giving out, even asphyxiation for many, just not being able to breathe. And the asphyxiation for many would come because the Romans then say, ah, it's day three, he's still breathing? Well, enough of that. It would be like taking a baseball bat to the leg. And guess what? Sometimes it don't break the first shot. So for some of these common criminals, I mean, they're just wailing away on these guys so that their legs break and then they, they'll die. But the Bible tells us that he would have no bone break. It's prophecy. Right back. Uh, John 19.36 says, For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. What was done? It says earlier, a few verses, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Meaning, break their legs, let them die, and get them off the cross. We've got stuff to do for Passover this week. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and then the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they break not his legs. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. Forthwith came there out blood and water. There are some who say it was the spear thrust that killed him. Baloney, it says, when they came and they did it, he was already dead. He had been dead for some time. He didn't linger for days. He suffered there in the darkness for hours. Three hours, total darkness, Luke 23, 44-45. And you can read all four accounts of the Gospel to put all these things together and to see this. But what we find is that Jesus suffered greatly for our sins. Physically, yes, because the crucifixion was gruesome. But an even deeper of a suffering. That he who knew no sin, could not sin, would not sin, then became sin. The Holy One has all of unholiness then placed upon Him. The sinless One, there in that darkness, the sinless One becomes sin itself. Such a loss. Such pain and agony physically, but even more so, as the King of glory has now been slaughtered for crimes that He did not commit. He did it because I sinned against Him. He did it because I was His enemy. He did it because I was dead in my sins and trespasses and would have no life without Him, without His death and resurrection. He did this because all of my righteousness that I could possibly offer is filthy rags and there's nothing that I can give to Him that could atone. What can atone for sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So how did He die? Was it the blood loss? No. Was it His heart? I don't believe so either. There's many who say that he went into shock. You know what happens if a person goes into shock? They often lose the ability to cognitively think and speak. What does Jesus do on the cross? He does a lot of talking, don't he? All legible. Not long paragraphs like the Sermon on the Mount he once preached. Because all the while he's gasping for air as the weight of sin is placed upon him and the wrath of God 
is poured out and he drinks from that cup of which you and I no longer have to. So how did Jesus die? How does one who is the resurrection and the life, how is the one who's the way, the truth, and the life, how is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, how does he die? John 19, verse 30. And Jesus therefore had received the vinegar. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He gave up his own life. No man takes it from Christ. I do not believe that Jesus had to be forced upon that cross. For that was his purpose. That was the plan of your salvation and mine. It always has been. There is no salvation outside of it. Tonight as we bring this to a close, the next couple days I want to challenge you to go through and search these Scriptures and see what Jesus did for us on that day. But the great news as believers in Christ, I know that not only that Jesus died for me and suffered greatly, but I know that Sunday's coming. I know that that resurrection day's coming. Not just for Jesus, but that resurrection day's coming for me too. Amen? I ain't going to be in this flesh forever. I'm not going to be in corruptible flesh forever. One day, this mortal is going to put on immortality. One day this corruptible will put on incorruption. Tonight I'll leave you with this. There's an old American traditional hymn. It has several different variations. And depending upon where you read it from, between four to six verses. It is, were you there? Most of us haven't heard it, let alone sung it. But I want to give you the first two verses tonight. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? It would do us an awful lot of good in days like today and the days ahead this week and truly every day of our life to do a couple of things. One, take a moment back to Calvary. There in the darkness, as Jesus, the Son of God, becomes your sin and my sin to take our sin away, blotting out our sin, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us. To redeem us and to make peace between God and us and us and God by the blood of His cross to reconcile us unto Himself. But then... The last verse of this goes, Were you there when He rose from the dead? Were you there when He rose from the dead? Some variations, some keep the, sometimes it causes me to tremble. But some other variations are, sometimes it causes me to shout glory, glory. May we look to Calvary. May we look to that empty tomb. May we look to our soon coming redemption. Let us pray. Father, we love You. We thank You for this time, for this night that we could gather. We could worship You, Lord. We could praise You for Your goodness, for Your faithfulness, for what Your Son Jesus has done for us on the cross that we could not do, that we could not bear. 
Lord, we thank You for this night. And God, I thank You for these dear people and for their patience. God, I pray that You would bless them for it. You would strengthen them. That You would help us as we leave from this place over the next few days, God, to search the Scriptures and to see what You have accomplished for us. To look not only to Calvary, to see that bloody cross, but may we see it as empty. God, may we see that empty tomb. May we anticipate our soon redemption. Lord, fill us, strengthen us, and may we carry this good news message in our hearts, in our minds, and loudly upon our tongues to all those who You have sent us to in this community, in our families, in our homes, in our neighbors. God, that we would proclaim this great truth that Christ has died for sinners and has risen again. Lord, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. Empower us and strengthen us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I appreciate y'all.